Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Oftentimes when a scientist explains their work to the public, there is a breakdown of communication. The person listening gets lost in the complex explanations and foreign terminology. But there are a small handful of amazing scientists that have an incredible ability to communicate. They keep their audience engaged and wanting more. And today we are joined by one of those persons, my colleague, Dr. Richard Alley from Penn State University. We're going to talk glaciology, meteorology, and climatology, and I guarantee you that you will not be disappointed. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm joined by Dr. Richard Alley. Richard, thank you for joining us today. Oh, Marshall, it is my pleasure. I thought you were discussing yourself there with your brilliant <laughs> abilities to communicate this field. Well, no, you know, honestly, I've just looked up to colleagues like you. So I've, I mean, I've really been a, you know, from afar. Sometimes you never know who's who you're mentoring. So I've, I've always been a big sort of follower and fan of yours. So I'm, it's an honor to have you on, on the Weather Geeks podcast today. Well, thank you. Yeah, so I want to just kind of introduce yourself. You're the Evan Pugh Professor of Geosciences at Penn State University, very well-known scholar and scientist in the field. I, I know uh, recently at the American Meteorological Society meeting, I think a couple of years ago or perhaps a year or so ago, you were one of the keynote uh, speakers at that event to open up the meeting. Um, tell us a little bit, if you were on an elevator speech, give us the elevator speech to the Weather Geeks audience on on what you do and what your expertise is at, at Penn State University. All right. So I've studied big ice sheets, uh, glaciers and ice sheets. Um, they're fascinating. Uh, they We worry about them for water supply, for hazards, for how they made Iowa have rich soils and how they made Yosemite have a beautiful valley. And we worry about the history of climate written in the ice, and we worry about whether the ice sheets will fall in the ocean and flood the coast. So uh, is it fair to say, I mean, I know many people uh, are familiar with the movie The Day After Tomorrow, and that movie starts off with a scientist down, I believe, in, in Antarctica drilling ice cores. Is it that type of work you do when you study ice sheets, or are you studying the glacial or uh, surficial water melt on top of the ice sheet, or is it all of the above, or...? It's a little all the the truth is now I sit around and answer email and we send postdocs and students to the field. Yeah, same but here. In the old days, I was out there drilling the cores and digging the holes and otherwise making the measurements of what's going on. Yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. I actually work with a colleague uh, here at the University of Georgia. His name is Dr. Tom Mode, and he he uses uh, satellite based data sets to study things like surface melt uh, on the on, on the Greenland ice sheet, for example. So I'm a bit familiar with the sort of world that you operate in. Yeah, Tom's great. Yeah. Uh, so I always like to, when I have an expert science, we're going to go in all kinds of directions with this discussion today. So this is really just sort of an introduction at this point. I like to give people, and you kind of gave us a, a hint into that and that what you do now, but 
in your sort of prime day, what would a sort of a typical day for you be as a scholar and a scientist, whether you're in the office at the university or out on the ice sheet? Uh, give us a, a glimpse into both of those when you were really doing it at a, at a, a significant pace. Well, as you know, the one of the fantastic things about our job is it's so many different things. And so one day you're in the middle of Greenland and it's the 4th of July and you're taking off after too many weeks of working, you know, 18-hour days and you're out there playing golf in the snow and you get in the snow trap um, and it's midnight in the 4th of July and the sun is shining and it's a glorious place and it's 30 below. And, you know, a year later, you're sitting in an oak-paneled room at the Senate testifying to a subcommittee about how they can use knowledge on climate change to make people better off. Yeah. And most of the time, you're talking to students and trying to get your classes ready and trying to help them do what they want to do. Now, now what, what got you into climatology, glaciology. I know, you know, during my time at AMS, we found that many of the AMS crowd gets interested in this field or whatever their field is, kind of in middle school. What's your story? I was a geology geek. I, I wanted to collect rocks and cut and polish things. And I went to Ohio State as an undergrad. I'm going to do geology. And I needed a summer job. And there were <laughs> two summer jobs. One was cleaning fossils with a dental pick. And the other was working with the glaciologist. Wow. So were you at the uh, Bird Polar Center there? Yep. Before it was even Bird Polar, it was the Institute of Polar Studies. And just fantastic people took me under their wing and guided me through a lot of things. And I got to Antarctica my sophomore year to do geology, and I was working on uh, ice cores for my senior thesis. Can you give us a 101 since you've mentioned it a couple of times? Uh, we're going to get into the science a bit later, but you've, I want to kind of go ahead and st establish this, because you've mentioned ice cores a couple of times. Can you give us the sort of Reader's Digest version of why ice cores are useful for climate science and how do we get glimpses of the past climate from these ice cores? Yeah, uh, well, I'll try. So, so if you dig a hole in the top of Greenland, you're at a place that's minus 30. It does not melt. The snow piles up summer to winter to summer to winter to summer to winter. And summer and winter snow will look different because the sun shines in the summer and it doesn't shine in the winter. And that affects the nature of the snow. So you can, if if you pull a cylinder of ice out of the ice sheet and another one and another one and another one and you go down two miles, you can look at the side of that ice and go summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, like tree rings. Right. And so they, they carry a record going back in that. What about the isotopic and our topic analysis? What, I, I know that there's some of that that goes on too. We've got bubbles trapped in the absolutely. ice. Right. So, so if we get the age... And we can check ourselves on the age. So I was up there in a hole in Greenland counting layers, and we knew in 1783 there's a giant eruption of a volcano in, in Iceland called Lockie. Um, ben Franklin is writing about it. He's in Paris representing the young nation, and he says, wow, there's a dry fog. There must be an eruption in Iceland. Well, Iceland knew about it. And so we can say, oh, look, here's the fallout from Lockie right where we expected it. So we know that we're getting the age right. If you get the age right, the thickness of an annual layer tells you how much it snowed. Uh -huh. And that's a good view. I know you work on, on extreme precipitation events and yes. similar things. So we can get 
snowfall. We can get hydrometeorology. Then in there are sea salt, there's pollen, there's uh, micrometeorites, there's anything that blows through the air is in the snow. And you know if you see dirty snow, either you got a lot of dirt or you only have a little snow. Right. And if you know how much it snowed, then you can tell how much stuff was coming through the air and you can tell how dirty the air was. Right. And so now you have histories of how much lead have humans put in the air from lead mining and leaded gasoline. You have histories of what was growing upwind that is burning and putting smoke on your ice sheet. Yes. Yeah, so then, that, that, so this, this, you're really almost like a detective. Oh, absolutely. This is CSI Ice Core. No doubt about it. <laughs> hey, CBS, you're listening. CBS Ice Core. I think we can get that one on the air. Okay. So, and then, then you have trapped in the, the ice little bubbles, and the bubbles are samples of old air, and they tell us what the atmospheric composition was in the past. And there are indicators of temperature on the ice sheet that are also in there, and these are isotopic and other sorts of things. So now I can tell you when it was what was blowing through the air, what was coming down as cosmic rays from micrometeorites from space, what the composition of the atmosphere was, how much greenhouse gas was up there, what the temperature was, what the snowfall was, and it's all sitting there in that one ice car. Yeah, and one of the things when you mentioned ice, I mentioned it too, isotopes and isotopic. One of the things that I saw from one of our uh, awesome Weather Geeks podcast listeners, they love that we kind of go deep into the, the, to the material and the science, but they said sometimes what we want to know exactly a little bit more about some of those terms. So could you explain to the Weather Geeks listeners, because we have a wide range of listeners, what an isotope is? Right. So um, so suppose that you were a, um, a water molecule, H2O, and in there there's two H's and one O, and the O has um, eight protons and eight neutrons almost always. But occasionally, the O will have a ninth or a tenth neutron as well. So it's oxygen 17 or oxygen 18 rather than 16 for the weight. And it's still oxygen. The water molecule that contains that heavy oxygen is still water. But something like 1 in 200 molecules in the ocean has an extra uh, neutron or two in the oxygen or an extra neutron in the hydrogen. And it's water, but it's a little heavy. And if you're an air mass and you are moving up the flank of Greenland, snowing on your way, the heavy stuff falls out first. And the colder it gets, the more the moisture has squeezed out, the more the heavy is squeezed out. And so you start running out of heavy and you can only get light. So really cold times give you lighter isotopic ratios in the center of Greenland. And really warm times, a little more of that heavy gets up to you rather than falling out on the way. Ah, yes, that's a very excellent, excellent explanation. And you can see that uh, Dr. Alley is very gifted at uh, converting complex information into very useful and understandable information. Now, you aren't a meteorologist. I'm a meteorologist, Florida State trained. You are a climate scientist. Can people get a bachelor's degree in climatology or what do you recommend for someone that's interested in more in climate? Because one of the things that I found uh, in being the AMS president is that 
training in meteorology is not necessarily the same as training in climatology. And I think some of our meteorologist colleagues forget that sometimes. So what what is the best training for climatology? Yeah, so it's it's from all over the map, all right? So there are some of us who didn't have to take dynamics. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> some people are having flashbacks to their dynamics classes. They listen right now. <laughs> I'm sure they are. So so the beauty of, of climatology is you can come into it from so many directions. Meteorologists are fantastic important in this. So are oceanographers. Um, You know, clearly the experts in remote sensing are are key to it. But we have people like me who are geologists that came in from the the history of climate. We have biologists and chemists who come in from the history of climate. The ability to... Right. So uh, if you were a, a certain algae living in the ocean... You um, have to control yourself, and if it gets really warm, your cell wall gets really floppy, and so you change the chemicals that you build your cell wall out of to make it firmer so that you don't get too floppy when it's warm. Right. And when you die, those fall to the bottom of the ocean, and they pile up in the sediment, and a good chemist can pull that organic molecule out, measure the single to double carbon bond ratio in the 37 carbon chain alkenone and tell you the temperature at which that thing grew a million years ago. Wow. So that, <laughs> Is this fantastic? Oh. And so you can be a chemist or a biologist and come into this and do the history of climate, and suddenly you're a climatologist too. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. But the reason I brought that up, particularly one of the reasons is, you know, I, I find as someone that has gone through a very traditional meteorology program and as the director of an atmospheric sciences program now that tries to integrate more climate-related uh, information into the curriculum, I actually do find that some meteorology curriculums are limited in, in climate or these sort of broader interdisciplinary geosciences topics that make for a good climate scientist. So a lot of times you have people out there speaking from their meteorological training, but they don't have this broad set of uh, sort of exposure to the what you're talking about, which is glaciology and geology and oceanography, because we, as we know, the Earth operates as a system. What, how would you respond to people that say, oh, I, I, I know the dynamics of the atmosphere. That's enough for me to understand climate. Right. Yeah, probably not. I mean, you know the problem is that, that we desperately need good meteorologists. We have good meteorologists. The value of, of weather forecasting is is fantastic. And there really is scholarship showing with very high confidence that the the payoff from weather forecasting grossly exceeds the cost of weather forecasting. So we need these people who have dynamics and have, you know, atmospheric thermodynamics and radiative transfer. But that's not the whole story. And if you're a good meteorologist, you have had beaten into your head that you can't predict the weather beyond about two weeks. Yes, yes. We hear that often. How do you, how do we trust climate models when I know that we can't predict weather beyond 10 to 14 days? Yeah, keep going with that. And I want to deal with this. Keep going. Right. So, so for, for us, it's the difference between an initial condition problem and a boundary condition problem. But um, for a meteorologist, right, so you can't predict the weather beyond two weeks, but you can predict the Madden-Julian oscillation beyond two weeks, and you can predict El Nino beyond two weeks, you can see to the sort of next big reconfiguration of everything. And so when you look at the weather today, 
in a couple of weeks, it's going to look really, really different, and then it's hard to predict. But when you look at El Nino today, in a couple of weeks, it's going to look just like it does now, and you can predict it way farther out. When you look at climate, it changes even more slowly, and you can predict it until it's really, really different. And that really does allow us to push the, the forecast way farther out. Yeah, and I, that's a great point because I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up to me, and actually some of them were meteorologists, that say, uh, I can't trust these climate models because I know that there are limitations in the weather models. And I said, well, that's really an apples and oranges comparison. And so it's always something I like to ask colleagues like you when I hear that come up. I, yeah. I want to get your perspective to see if that's something you've experienced too. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know the story. The climate models are brilliant at doing global mean surface temperature. They're brilliant at the big thermodynamic things. So warmer air has more water in it. When conditions are right, it can rain faster. The models are not that good at doing in detail what is going to happen regionally in the changing climate for you in, in Georgia or for us in Pennsylvania. And this is this huge frontier that we really can make better. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Richard Alley, the Evan Pugh Professor in Geosciences at Penn State University. Just an amazing scientist, amazing science communicator. And I want to focus a bit on your science communication aspect right now. What do you think? And I, I heard you speak at the AMS, and I, you know, I've always known of your you and your reputation. But once again, I was blown away just seeing you there in person. What do you think makes you a good, skilled science communicator? Well, I, I hope I am. but You um, are, trust me. <laughs> you are quite good, actually. Partially it's I'm having fun. A lot of it is I have the opportunity to teach. And I, for historical reasons, I tar started teaching at the introductory level. And so very quickly one gets extremely um, powerful feedback of whether you're connecting or not if you have a, a room of a couple hundred students who need this class, but they may not all have wanted to sign up for this class. Yeah, I bet you're. I bet you get really good teaching reviews there at Penn State. I suspect we keep trying. So, <laughs> but it really is. You know, it's it's finding the story, and for the modern world especially, it's when you get out of class and you're walking home, you put the phone away and you say, how would I tell my mother what I learned today? Right. How would I tell my father? How would I tell my hamster what I learned today? And if one can sort of walk through, how do you turn all of this glorious science into a story that you could relate at the dinner table? Um, 
I think that's most of the step for being a communicator. Do you do you feel? I mean, you're 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 an academic, you're a professor, you're a scholar, and I'm sure you know as well as I do that there are some of our colleagues that don't want to go into the uh, public arena or policy space. You do all of those things. Do you feel we are obligated as scientists uh, to do that, or do you feel it's okay to just sort of stay in our act on our academic treadmill of publishing papers and going to conferences? Yeah, I think that we as a community have an absolute uh, rock-solid responsibility to share what we learn with the public. That doesn't mean that every single one of us does. There really needs to be somebody who's locked away in a room making sure the calibration on the sensor on the new satellite is perfectly correct. And so we've got to make sure our numbers are right. We've got to do that. But the community as a whole simply has to uh, make what we discover useful to the people. And that involves a lot of communication. And I know when you were president of the AMS and the AMS more generally, the American Meteorological Society, has worked very, very hard in making sure that they they learn how to make the knowledge useful to the people who paid for it. Yeah, I think that's very important. But how do you deal with this? I mean, and I, I don't know if this is much of a problem now, but I, I know that people like Carl Sagan and uh, maybe even Neil deGrasse Tyson, I've even heard whispers of it myself, even though I'm a fellow of the AMS and have all the um, academic bells and whistles. I've heard whispers about scientists that are popularizers. What is, how do you respond to people that say, oh, the, those people that are kind of going into public space, they aren't serious scientists or they're not able to kind of achieve the sort of gravitas that those that just focus on publishing and and those types of things. How do you respond to that? Yeah, Marshall Shepard. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there, there clearly are people who are, are getting the word out, who are doing the discovery who, who and so on. So I really believe that it's down to just a little bit of sour grapes and that primarily the community recognizes that um, our job is not just to discover. Our job is to help people and that that doesn't end with the discovery. It begins with the discovery. And speaking of that, you have briefed Congress. You've briefed Al Gore. Uh, Why do you kind of venture into sort of the political arena? Because people often say, oh, this climate change stuff is political. We both know it's not. It's just been (laughs) spun as political. Um, But I want to get your thoughts on Al Gore briefing Congress, because one of the things that I've often said is, boy, I wish Al Gore and John McCain would have made that movie together and likely depoliticize some of this because people associate Al Gore with a Democrat. So it's a liberal issue and it's not. So give me your thoughts on this whole politics of climate change change in your perspective. All right. So so w- when I have done this, it's been because people ask. So the science opened the door for me to be able to talk to folks who were, were making a difference. I completely agree with you that this has been made to seem political when it very clearly is not. Um, and so I, the, the opportunity to take the science and talk to people is, is one of these that's not given to all of us. And, and I've been very grateful that people ask me to do it. Uh, I had this occasion once. I, I went to Greenland for a long weekend with 10 senators. And this was a, a fact-finding trip. Um, it was bipartisan. Um, the 
intelligence, the interest, the the senators were fantastic. And when one could sit down without the cameras running and talk these things over, um, they were interested. They were interesting. They wanted to know what was going on. They learned at a rate that would challenge the very best of our students. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we need this. We need the ability to talk to folks both in public, but also when you've turned the camera off and you can speak plainly without worrying about someone distorting your words later. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've had a, a very similar experience in the times that I've had had the opportunity to do that as well. I just think it's if, if we aren't there to sort of give the science knowledge from our perspective as scientists, oftentimes I say that people with agendas or with less knowledge are happy to fill the void that we leave. You're surely correct. <laughs> I want to talk about a music video. Apparently, and I'm not familiar with this, so perhaps you can tell us, uh, tell us about the music video in the cornfield. And by the way, as he's talking about this, uh, I believe it's available on YouTube. So once he tells us about it, perhaps you can go take a look at it yourself if you're listening. Right. So so I teach a large online class. Um, Penn State has 24 campuses, I believe. Um, we run um, a bunch of two-year campuses, a bunch of four-year campuses, uh, geographically dispersed around the, the Commonwealth. And some of them don't have a geologist. And so we put together a geology of national parks and we got a dozen advanced students and we took them to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and we had them film what they were doing and we had our, our local PBS affiliate WPSU film the students filming the parks and we built this class around it and at some point we said we should do the reviews to classic rock videos. And so um, my dear wife has done a, a whole lot of the geovisualizing on it, and we have a suite of a dozen or so of these that um, the geology ones, uh, you probably remember that um, around the Pacific there are a bunch of volcanoes and earthquakes and, and they cause tsunamis and other things, and that's called the Ring of Fire. And you probably also remember the man in black who went down in a ring of fire. Yes. And so I come out clad in black and I say, I'm not Johnny Cash, but I have been in a ring of fire. And then I <laughs> sing about subduction zones. And we have Creedence Clearwater Revival doing energy out in the cornfield. And we have um, kneading sand on our beaches done to the yellow submarine. And we just have a ball. <laughs> oh, wow. So this is, yeah, I, this reminds a, a quite a bit of my colleague at UGA, Dr. John Knox, who likes to incorporate music into his teaching as well. He does it quite brilliantly. Yeah, John is really good. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's quite good, actually. I wanted to ask you about something as a geologist and someone that matriculates in the geology community. I remember a few years ago, I was invited to the uh, Geological Society of America meeting to give a talk on climate change. And I was talking to a geologist colleague and he said, oh, be careful because there are a lot of geologists that are climate skeptics or climate contrarians. We're trying to sort of remove this notion of calling folks skeptics. And they were saying that that is because of the fact that many geologists look back deep in time, millions of years, and know that climate has changed naturally in the past. Um, first of all, is that a fair assessment of the geologist community? Because I don't know that it is. And then secondly, uh, how do you deal with people that say the climate has changed naturally and we've in fact been warmer than we have been today. Yes, I have certainly heard that from geologists, so I think that is a fair assessment. Um, let me do an analogy and I will try to answer your question. So we know for a fact that the hills around Los Angeles have always burned. 
naturally. And because of that, we really worry about kids with illegal fireworks. Uh, we know that people have always died naturally, and so we have a homicide squad. We have CSI because if people can die, then they can be killed as well. We know the climate has always changed, and that proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that climate is changeable. And so that is why essentially we need people in the community in which I have worked who do CSI climate and who do ice cores and other things to learn how much climate has changed and why. And so when we look at climate change, what do we find? Climate has always changed. It has changed for many reasons, but especially because of changing CO2. We humans could cause a change in CO2 if we keep going that's about as big as the biggest things nature has ever done and faster than virtually all of them. And CO2 has always changed climate and climate has always changed life. When CO2 rose naturally in the past and it got hot, things migrated, things became extinct, uh, large warm-blooded animals became dwarfed because it wasn't good to be large and warm. Um, and so climate has always changed. When you walk through that, actually increases the concerns about what we humans are doing to the climate right now. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with Professor Richard Alley, and I, I want to stay on this line of thinking and discussion that we were just on in terms of climate change because, you know, as a scientist that operates in this sphere too, one of the things that I commonly hear is, oh, do you believe in climate change? And Dr. Shepard, you know the climate has changed naturally, right? And so, of course, I know that. I've, I've studied this material. <laughs> I wasn't sleeping in class when that, that section came up. But it's often interesting that people try to frame this as either or. It's either naturally varying climate or it's anthropogenic or human uh, uh, affected climate. When I say it's both, I mean, grass grows naturally, but when you fertilize the soil, it grows differently. And I think that that's sort of what you were just talking about as well, particularly with the rate of change, because humans uh, can really force the climate system quite quickly. Absolutely. What are, what, are, what are things that are scary to you right now in terms of things like sea ice or changes to the ice sheets or sea level rise? What, yeah. what are the things that are just grabbing your attention right now? Right. So our focus these days is on the ice sheets. And um, we expect from um, if warming continues rapidly, um, by the time our students are old, we're expecting something like three feet of sea level rise. And it could be two and it could be four, but it could be 15. Um, and the, the possibility that very rapid collapse in West Antarctica could drive sea level rise up is real. Um, we have this long knowledge of the history of ice that ends in the ocean, um, always ends in a cliff. When it gets warm, that cliff um, usually retreats. Um, 
Glacier Bay, when Vancouver sailed by, it was there wasn't a Glacier Bay. And when John Muir sailed by, it was 50 miles or so retreated. The ice had just been falling off the front of the glacier. Uh, that's happening in Greenland. If it starts happening in West Antarctica, it, there's this vast amphitheater of internal basins and a whole lot of sea level rise could happen in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And so the, the chance that it's not three feet plus or minus one of rise, it's three feet plus or minus one of rise plus maybe, a, you know, another 11 feet uh, fairly rapidly. Now, that's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I've often heard us as climate scientists being accused of is being overly cautious. I think our nature as scientists is to be objective and not be, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, inflating things or, you know, create run, uh, hitting the panic button too soon. But many people have said because of our nature, we're undertelling the story. In other words, things are happening more rapidly than perhaps even some of the models uh, projected and that we're underselling or we're not really sounding alarm as much as we should be. How do you respond to people that say that? Yeah, I think we worked very hard to get it right, but I don't think we've done as well as we might at explaining the the nature of the uncertainties. Um, and so we sort of people will say, "Oh, well, you're uncertain. Shouldn't doesn't that mean we should wait?" I say, "Well, probably not, um, because what comes out is that things might be a little better than we're expecting, or a little worse, or a lot worse." Uh, you know the shapes of the the climate sensitivity estimates, and there's usually a long tail on the higher bad side. Um, the sea level rise has got this very long distribution. Um, when we think about plant growth, right? Every serious assessment of of global warming costs and benefits includes the fact that CO two makes plants grow better. And maybe they'll do even a little better than we expect, or maybe they'll do a little worse, but just turning up CO2 can't make them grow infinitely fast. But if it gets too hot, they might die. And if it gets too cold, they die. And if it gets too dry, they die. And if it gets too wet, they die. And if you you don't have pollinators at the right time, it's just as bad as if they died. And if you bring in an invasive smut or rust because of climate change, they can die. And so the, the uncertainties are it could be a little better than we expected. It could be a little worse. It could be a lot worse. And I don't think we've really done well at making it clear that building things is hard and lots of CO2 is not going to build the Garden of Eden, but breaking things is easier and it really might break things that we care about very deeply. Yeah, I I actually agree completely. I I run into the challenge of uncertainty all of the time. People will say, well, there's uncertainty, so we can't trust the models or we can't trust the scientists, so don't act. But I remind people that there we use information with uncertainty all of the time. If I said there was an 80% chance of rain, most people would grab an umbrella, even though there's very uh, quite a bit of useful information there with that uncertainty. Yeah, and I think that y- your background in, in weather forecasting, the work you've done in helping this advance, the weather forecasters are, are, are shining light in how to communicate this. And I know there still are real challenges within weather forecasting to communicate it better, but the, all the rest of us can learn from you. Yeah, but in, in the same vein, though, uh, Richard, there are quite a few meteorologists that are climate contrarians. I'll use that word for the time being. Uh, how do you deal with 
the sort of contrary. I'm sure I'm certain of it because we've all been there. I'm certain that you've had to deal with either someone at a talk you've given or at perhaps even a congressional briefing, someone that challenges you with what I call zombie theories. These things that we know as scientists have long been refuted, but they just live on in blogs and on Twitter and on certain TV and radio shows. How do you approach and deal with people that come to you? One with reasonable skepticism that I think is that we as all scientists agree must exist versus someone that comes at you with a vitriolic tone of hate and mean spiritedness. Yeah, um, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you do it very well. It's it's situational. You say, you know, if you hate me, that's fine. We can sit down and talk later. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Um, people who want real information, it's it, it's fun. You know, that's that's why we got into teaching is we, we want to do that. Um, but the people who are really angry, it's hard. The The thing that I go back to with climate is that right now, so the Nobel Prize in Economics was just given to William Nordhaus for work using absolute normal growth-friendly, business-friendly standard economics to show that we are hurting ourselves economically by not making use of the knowledge on climate change and energy to build better policies. If you're interested in improving the economy, we take our knowledge on climate and we use it rather than saying it's an evil lie from people. Um, If you're interested in national security, our military leaders have been very clear that this is a national security issue. If you want jobs, you do better. If you make the economy better, you get more jobs. And so right now, helping health, helping the environment, helping ethics are in the same direction as helping the economy, helping employment, and helping national security. So if somebody is really upset about the economy, you maybe start there. You have, I am sure, heard the... I don't know about the science, but I know we can't afford to deal with climate. Oh, sure. I think that's the, as Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Absolutely. But the Nobel Prize in economics just went to work showing that we can't afford not to deal with the climate. Exactly. Yeah, I think there are certainly economic implications for not dealing with it that I often think get left out of that narrative that you just so uh, eloquently stated Completely. that we, we all hear. What about 2100? I mean, someone born today might live to 2100. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, if you could put on your sort of glasses and see the future, I mean, what do you see beyond 2100 in terms of the climate system or particularly the areas you deal with? Right. A whole lot of it is we're deciding, right? So, so you know the story. If you you look at um, uncertainties in climate projections, for the next 10 or 15 years, they're dominated by the fact that we don't know if we'll get two or three El Ninos. And beyond that, they're dominated by things that we don't fully know about the climate system and especially the sensitivity. But by the time our students are old, it's dominated by our decisions. It's we will decide where it goes, and that has more importance than anything that we don't know about anything else. So with that (laughs) as the wording, um, you know that in the worst case, uh, there are places on Earth that start to become fatal for people sitting outside. You're you're outside um, naked in the shade, in the wind, drinking water, and you're going to die of heat stroke. Um, And that starts sort of at the time our students are getting really old. Um, The potential for... 
a large amount of sea level rise. That if you go today and stand on the on the beach, um, the water will be up to your neck, and it might be way over your head by that time. Right. But on the other side is. We have built an energy system that powers everybody on the planet essentially forever. We can water fields by desalinating and pumping because we have excess energy. We can fertilize. We can you know, beat entropy essentially. Um, the world has we have this immense history of burning things until we run out of them, hitting a crisis, having government intervention and trying to find something else to burn. And we're the first generation that knows that our students could live on a world that everyone has energy and essentially forever. Yeah, I think that's a very, very important words there from one of the top scholars in this field. It's been an honor to have you. We're getting close to the end here with Professor Richard Alley from Penn State. But before I go, I just wanted to find out from you, what, what do you have going on? What, 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 what's Professor Alley got going on right now over the next year to five years? What's, what, any big projects or things that are keeping you particularly busy? Yeah, so so the the group as a whole, as I, I might have mentioned earlier, I answer email and I teach. Um, but the group as a whole is really focused on this this question of collapse of West Antarctica, and so there is a a. Uh, National Science Foundation, British Antarctic Survey, other international collaborators' effort to go down into the Amundsen Sea and go driving up Thwaites Glacier, which is the main entrance to these vast inland basins of West Antarctica, and weigh them and measure them and fly um, things over them and put automated vehicles under the ice shelves and measure the ocean and get the history. And it's just this fantastic uh, research project, which addresses maybe the single biggest physical tipping point in the climate system. So mm -hmm. we're really excited about that. We're going to model it. We're going to, but this is a group. This is not me. And before I let, let, let you get out of here, though, could you explain, because I've had a, a listener ask me that before, what do we mean when we say a tipping point? Right. So, so I mean, some of it's really easy. If you um, stand a domino up on end and you blow lightly on it, nothing happens. And if you blow more strongly on it, it falls over. Um, we worry about these things that if you slowly force the system with CO2 or anything else, if the sun were to get brighter or dimmer, that sometimes dominoes would fall over. And for West Antarctica, right now, the ice is stabilized in a position that it really likes. If you bump it a little bit, not much happens. If you bump it a little too much, it will retreat. Um, an analogy, right? So um, an army tries to occupy a high ground. It puts up reinforcements. It, it builds bulwarks and so forth. And if it's forced to retreat, it will not stop in the middle of the low ground. It will go to the next high ground. Right. Uh, the ice in Glacier Bay was on a high ground. When it was kicked off, it retreated 65 miles to the next high ground. It didn't stop halfway in between. In West Antarctica, if it gets kicked off the high ground, the next really good stopping point is is 11 feet of sea level rise away. 
Yes, that's a very good analogy. And again, just illustrative of Dr. Alley's ability to communicate science. Going to have to end it there. Are you on social media? Is there anywhere people can follow you and sort of absorb some of this knowledge after the podcast? I'm not really. Um, the One of our students, Emily Schwanz, has been tweeting for, for um, Thwaites Glacier um, and other people in the group are. But I have to admit, I'm an, I'm an old fossil. Yeah, I'm well, sorry. We, I, I will more than make up for you because I actually use social media quite a bit, but make sure you uh, Google Dr. Alley. Go and look at some of what he's done over the, uh, over the course of his career because he really is, I consider, a legend in the field and someone that people like me have looked up to for some time. So thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's, it's my pleasure, Marshall. Thank to you and thank the listeners of Weather Geeks. Absolutely. Absolutely.